This is Candlelight, a show where we talk to people involved in human rights across disciplines. I'm Carissa Bernard. Today we are talking to two UConn professors who are active members of UConn's Human Rights Institute. What are we missing even though we have these strong constitutional protections? What can we learn from a broader international conversation about securing civil and political rights? Don't go away. I'm Shireen Hertel, and I'm a jointly appointed professor in political science and in human rights. And within the Human Rights Institute, I co-direct our program on economic and social rights. And I'm Kathy Liebal. I am an associate professor in the School of Social Work and in the Human Rights Institute. I'm the director of the Human Rights Institute. Professor Liebal, let's start with an easier question. You teach courses on Macro Foundation, correct? Yes. Can you explain what Macro Foundation is? Okay, so this is language that belongs to social work. These are courses that introduce all social work students to key ideas about social problems, the theories that might explain why poverty or inequality exists, that help us to understand how power operates within communities, that introduces students to different theories like feminism or critical race theory, and basically help students who might be going in to do direct clinical practice with clients or to work in communities and community organizing, or potentially to be policy advocates to understand what are the broader forces within their society and globally that shape people's life chances and opportunities. You also have a bachelor's in comparative religion, a master's in anthropology, and a doctorate in philosophy. Is that correct? Yeah, so actually I have my, my bachelor's, my undergraduate degree in comparative religion, and I focused in an undergraduate honors thesis on the revitalization of Islam in Hong Kong and Taiwan. So I started my, my work as an anthropologist a bit early as an undergraduate student, and then I got my master's and my PhD in anthropology. What influenced your course of study? Was there anything in particular that directly linked you to these fields? So for some reason, I I grew up in Alaska, and we didn't have a lot of opportunity to study other languages in our school system. It was a small school system. I had a class of 63 students who graduated from my town. And I chose an undergraduate program that allowed a lot of potential for language study and for travel abroad. And Lewis and Clark, which is in Portland, Oregon, had one of the first study abroad programs to China. And I thought, I don't know anything about China, and I certainly don't know anything about learning Chinese. And I started to study Chinese when I was a freshman, and then I went to China as a sophomore. That began an interest, a lifelong interest in learning in other cultural contexts, and that's how I took up becoming an anthropologist. Wow. (laughs) What about you, Professor Hartel? You have a PhD and did postgraduate work in political science and have a master's in international affairs? Yes, I do. Tell us a bit about your postgraduate work. So I spent a year after I finished my doctorate. I was at Columbia. I did my undergrad, and I had lived in New York for quite some time by the time I finally did my PhD there. And I spent a year at the um, Human Rights Institute at Columbia doing teaching and also doing research for the book I eventually wrote from my dissertation that focuses on 
sweatshop labor and community organizing in Mexico and in Bangladesh and looks at the way we reinterpret human rights when we learn to listen a little bit better to the people we're trying to, quote unquote, help. Since we are already on topic, tell us about your fieldwork in Mexico, India, and Bangladesh. Okay. I became a professor sort of later in my career. I initially went to undergraduate, worked a couple of years, then went back and did my master's, and then almost a decade later went back and did a PhD. And so when I was going back to do my doctorate, I actually returned to places where I'd already worked. I had worked for the UN Women's Fund in Mexico, and I had worked with the Ford Foundation in Bangladesh. And while I was in both of those places, I was very aware that each country was trying to integrate itself into the global marketplace by taking advantage of the fact that it had a very young and big population who could do factory-based work. And so I was working in both settings with often quite poor women who, despite the difficulties of a factory job, wanted that job in many cases over other types of work that might have been available to them, being a housemaid or selling empanadas or other food items on the street. And so my fieldwork in my dissertation focused on talking to factory workers themselves, but also talking to groups that were doing advocacy to improve workers' rights in the United States and also in those countries. So you've worked in various fields and various places. What's the one thing that links them all together for you? What drew you to these places? Very funnily enough, I, like Kathy, began with a love of language. So I learned to speak Spanish in undergraduate. I had taken Latin in high school, but didn't speak, obviously, Latin, um, and started studying Spanish in college. And I went to the field to study in my junior year of college in Colombia, in Bogota, and just fell in love with living in an international setting. I had grown up in a big city in Michigan, but really loved the energy and the dynamism of being in another culture. And so really very purposefully sought out opportunities as an intern, later as a graduate student, to continue to immerse myself in places that were different. And I think one of the other things that has been connecting that to my more recent work is I've been very interested also in looking at people's experiences here in the United States when you come from elsewhere. We are a nation of immigrants, as we know, and the experience for people in some parts of the United States who live on the margins of our society economically or socially is extraordinarily difficult. And so Kathy and I have written a book together that edited a volume that looks at those kinds of challenges of bringing human rights home in the United States. So I've always been very interested in looking at multiple ways of understanding what it means to be human and where we fit in and how we can improve collectively our life chances. Professor Liebel, you've also worked to improve food security and food policy in the United States, and now you're working on a project that looks at the role of legal aid organizations supporting Syrian refugees in Jordan and Turkey, right? Yes. What draws you to these countries? What makes these countries stand out to you, and what makes their need feel more real to you? When I was in my doctoral program, I actually did my dissertation research on a historical topic, looking at how ideas about children's rights and child welfare and concern with child poverty, how that emerged in Turkey in the 1930s. And to do that, I had to learn Turkish, and I've spent a long time in Turkey. I lived there in the early 1990s for almost two years, and then I've had many visits to the country. And after the U.S., 
initiated the war in Iraq in 2003, colleague Scott Harding and I eventually began a research project looking at the politics of humanitarian aid for Iraqi refugees. In the context of that project, we spent time in Jordan. We had a short visit to Syria to look at some of the work there, prior to the war, of course, in Syria. That's ongoing now. And we became very familiar with thinking about what are the obligations of international actors, especially those who may occupy a country during wartime, such as the United States, toward addressing the humanitarian and human rights issues of those who are affected by the conflict. So actually this project, which is in its early stages, looking at the role of organic indigenous legal aid kinds of processes for refugees in Jordan and Turkey, that project grew out of this earlier interest on the effects of the Iraq war on the region. Is there anything in particular that you feel you're going to be able to influence in the politics of everything that's there based on your work now? So certainly, I think just turning your eye and using the resources and the capacities that you have, both as a professor, meaning that you're hired by the university and you have stable employment, you have the opportunity to engage with other scholars and, and collaborators who are incredible brain trusts and have a lot of commitment, that creates a space where actually... It's, it's a privilege, but also, I think, a responsibility to engage in research that might actually have some positive outcomes or might inform a policy debate. And so, in this current project, actually, I'm trying to figure out how to do this a little differently from typical, traditional, ethnographic or qualitative research. Actually, I will be doing some engaged work, which means that I will volunteer at organizations and help support them in ways that I think I, I can in terms of potentially grant writing or helping to edit some of the reporting that they have to do as a part of their organizational practice. And at the same time, then really be learning in context about what are the questions, what are the debates that they're having, to what extent do they feel they're making a difference in addressing the lives of Syrian refugees and others who are also socially and economically marginalized within the communities where the refugees are. So I think this project is a little bit different, and it reflects probably some of the thinking of, of my colleagues in the Human Rights Institute who are looking for innovative ways to advance our, our kind of academic or scholarly understanding of humanitarianism and war and the effects on people, but also who are thinking about how do we use our resources to actually try to create changes in those systems so that people's rights are more fully observed? I think for me, I work on um, issues, as I mentioned earlier, related to sweatshop labor, labor rights, factory manufacturing. And so I have sort of a good fortune of teaching classes in that issue area, especially one that I teach with engineering. And so we look at how would we equip engineers who would go in and monitor safety factory conditions to be more well-versed in human rights language and practices? And how do we help our human rights students think differently about sustainability and a whole range of environmental impacts that they might not necessarily have thought about? And so some of the teaching that I do is directly relevant to preparing people like uh, you and other students who will go out into the workforce equipped with the tools to do your jobs differently. 
sensitive to human rights or sustainability issues, jointly auditing a factory to make sure that workers are protected and are healthy and safe. So for me, part of my way of having a public impact is through this very practically oriented aspect of the teaching that I do. It's definitely enriched by the theoretical component of political science in this case or engineering, but it also has a really important impact on how students then use that knowledge in their career life. And I think for both Kathy and myself, our connection to the Human Rights Institute is very inspiring because for every student upwards of several hundred a year who does a major or minor, those students all complete an internship. Many of us supervise those internships. Kathy supervises interns as they go through the graduate program in social work. And every single student whose life we impact either in the classroom or through an internship experience has this multiplier effect on the people who they interact with in the workplace, on the people in their communities. So I feel in a way as though I could curse the darkness or I can light my one candle in the classroom or I can uh, be willing to do an interview like this or any other kind of public outreach that will then have a big multiplier effect. Every person who hears the interview, every person who takes the class, every person who interacts then with the student who's now in the workforce is a potential agent of change. And I think when you work on problems like human rights and humanitarian relief in the context of war or sweatshops in the context of contemporary manufacturing globally, those problems can seem very overwhelming unless you start to think about how you as an individual agent of change are beginning to transform in a multiplier effect the lives of other people through your students, through your colleagues, through these kinds of collaborative relationships you have with other researchers or organizations where you volunteer. Going into more creative work, Professor Liebel, you did a documentary called Giving Voice, and you examined the use of spoken word art to promote social justice. Tell us what classifies as spoken word art and how it is effective. I am not the expert on how we would classify spoken word art, but I am completely, you know, entranced or captivated by the idea of using arts as a vehicle for sharing really important ideas that are often controversial and permitting the person who is creating the poem or the piece of spoken word to have an opportunity to, to give voice to their ideas in a way that they might not ordinarily do. It's an incredibly rich form of dialogue or engagement. It's interactive. The artist Kane Smigo, who's also an educator, had been a very successful spoken word artist and still is t- to today, is captivating and I think probably one of the most effective educators I've ever seen in practice. And reaches especially young people with a form of expression that I think it's difficult to find in any other medium. It translates national boundaries. So, for example, in the work we did with Kane, Scott Harding, and I actually participated in this project together, we interviewed him about taking his workshops and this approach to the Arab Spring. And taking his work and workshops to the Arab Spring, they spent time in Tunisia, they spent time in Egypt, and work in Zimbabwe, work in Peru, work in Thailand. So there's something about this particular art form that translates incredibly well to the youth. And I would say even to older people, he got many of us who might have been from a more middle-aged generation to write our own pieces and be willing to perform. And I think in terms of 
finding different means of expressing social justice and human rights concerns is a, is a key thing that many of us who are in the academic realm need to be open to. Finding avenues and ways to connect <clears throat> with young people, as well as with people who might think more visually or more through the arts and less through, say, an academic article that, that is fairly remote in terms of its language and and maybe even its meaning. Would you like to add to that? Yeah, I think it's a big challenge for those of us who are more traditionally employed as academics to find these other vehicles. So I know Kathy has worked very much to develop this capacity around how could I produce a documentary? Many of us use documentaries in our classroom, but we ourselves aren't producers of documentaries. We rely on other people in the arts to do that. And it's a really bold and exciting step when you'll see colleagues who will have a whole other outlet for their creative juices than their traditional scholarly writing and teaching. It's not common. I don't do anything terribly artistic besides my, my gardening. And I don't um, produce any art per se, but I'm very aware that for many of my students, uh, visual culture is extraordinarily important in how they understand and perceive problems in the world around them. So I tend to use documentary clips. I have used some prose from first-person narratives in some of the classes I've taught. And I find that the immediacy of those forms of expression are really helpful. Many of my students at UConn, we have a goal that a third of our students would study abroad, but many, many, many of our students have never left the United States. And so one of our challenges is opening their view to include these other people in places, but then also taking the time to process the experience of that exposure. So it's not just a voyeuristic kind of exposure where you other the problem and say, oh, and life must be just terrible in those parts of X, Y, or Z region of the world, but look for the deeper meanings behind why that misery exists and then look for the linkages to the responsibility of your own person or country or culture, and then solutions that are joint and shared. So I think Part of what for me has been very exciting about working in the Human Rights Institute is I'm often exposed to colleagues who use different mediums of expression. I have colleagues in literature who will use writings from the 19th and early 20th century about slavery or about other topics. And I tend to use very contemporary work, political science, that's driven largely by the latter half of the 20th century if it's going to do any kind of archival work. But we work with people in the fine arts. We have classes in human rights film. We have classes... In theater and human rights, we have classes in literature and human rights. And so for me, I feel as though when I attend a talk by a colleague or a guest speaker from one of those domains, I'm learning in ways I would never learn if I just sat there and only talked to people in my discipline or taught from my discipline's canon of what the good books are. You're listening to Candlelight, the show about human rights across disciplines. I'm Carissa Bernard, and today's guests are Professor Shireen Hertel and Professor Kathy Liebel. Professor Hertel and Professor Liebel worked on a book entitled Human Rights in the United States Beyond Exceptionalism. So, Professor Hertel, why don't you get us started on what exactly 
it's about. The title itself is really interesting because the notion of exceptionalism is linked to this idea that America is somehow different, exceptional, more special, more privileged, and that human rights are for people elsewhere. And our book is about piercing that idea and really laying open for folks the continuing challenges we have in fulfilling rights here at home. Very often, unfortunately, Americans will have one or two perspectives on human rights. One is to say, I don't have to bother because life is so much more miserable elsewhere that they can just contain their problems and they won't affect me. Or I'm so wonderful that my way of understanding and appreciating and responding to human rights is the only way to do so. And so our book really was structured to move beyond this idea that America is somehow exceptional and to think about also how to apply human rights organizing and conceptual strategies here at home in the United States. How would we solve problems of environmental justice, of longstanding racial disparities in education, health, housing, if we looked at those issues not so much as an issue of blame for a long-term group of people, but rather a shared struggle to improve our collective human rights? And so how could we use structures and strategies within the United Nations system, applying them here at home? And how could we build bridges if we have a community in the United States that's looking for lessons learned and ways to be effective in advocating for their rights to build bridges across cultures? Professor Liebel, how would you say that this book is different than other human rights books? There are many books that your fellow academics have written. What makes this book stand out? What makes this book completely unique? I'm very glad to say that since the time we published this book, there are actually several books that um, examine the question of how do human rights issues matter within the United States. And at the time that Dr. Hertel and I were working on the project, we had the Human Rights Institute had hosted a very large conference on human rights in the United States, and it had had a, a large group of both more formal academics and practitioners who joined to share knowledge about how might you think about civil and political rights as human rights concerns? What, what are we missing even though we have these strong constitutional protections? What can we learn from a broader international conversation about securing civil and political rights? And our constitution doesn't very robustly protect the idea that you have economic and social rights. And so how might we use our participation in different human rights treaties and monitoring mechanisms, as well as connections with experts who are global about how you would actually realize a right to adequate housing or food, for example. So this book was a really important initial insertion point into a conversation and a dialogue and a movement that we hope takes place and unfolds in really rich ways in the coming years. We situated, in our own introduction to the book, we situated the focus on bringing human rights home to the United States within a context of activism and NGO work that had been playing out since the 1990s. And indeed, Dr. Hertel was linked with many of the people who were involved in that early movement. Since that time, the U.S. Human Rights Network has been formed and many colleagues who are spread all across the countries, ranging from those who are in grassroots, community-based organizations, to very prominent NGOs like the American Civil Liberties Union, Human Rights Watch, and Amnesty, 
are engaged in a nationwide network to highlight things that might have ordinarily been portrayed as social problems as matters of human rights that have urgency and need to be examined through a human rights lens and as time goes on to really advocate using the human rights framework. So I would say our book is unique in that it it tried to address a range of issues that might not ordinarily be called human rights issues in the U.S. and very rigorously applied that international human rights law and practice lens to those concerns. So around disability and access, around the question of women's rights and gender-based violence, around a huge range of business and human rights. You know, certainly this is an opening conversation in many of those areas. Is there anything in particular that you look forward to discussing in terms of your work or anything that you might want to let people know about your work with organizations, for example? I think one of the exciting moments, which Dr. Liepel sort of alluded to, but it's a really exciting time. UConn has had a human rights program now for well over a decade, and we've graduated hundreds and hundreds of students at the undergraduate level, as well as having many, many students go through our graduate certificate program when they're already doing a master's in social work or a law degree or a PhD. So there are literally hundreds of people all over the country and at this point all over the world who come through this very interdisciplinary learning process, internship process at the undergrad level, and then applying human rights within their own scholarly work if they're graduate students. And they are now producing human rights scholarship and human rights activism. So colleagues of ours, Bandana Perkyashtha and Davida Silvan glassberg wrote a book almost at the same time we did about human rights in the USA. And one of their collaborators on that book is now a professor himself at San Jose State University doing wonderful public policy right work in his own right, Bill Armeline, with the judicial and other branches of government in that area around police violence and mass incarceration and a whole series of things he researched here at UConn while a graduate student. Other students of ours are now producing human rights indicators and doing really fascinating work on how to measure poverty from a human rights perspective. So we have people here in the Human Rights Institute, our colleague Nishith Prakash, for example, and one of his former students, Elizabeth Koletsky, who now teaches at Ithaca College, together producing scholarly work on how better to measure economic rights. We have students who are doing amazing work in the U.S. government. Catherine Bradbury, one of our former students, has now is now working for Senator Blumenthal, but had spent time as a White House intern. So what I see is that both here at home, whether it's in San Jose or Washington, and internationally, Liz Koletsky does research on child labor all over the world, there are a lot of people leaving UConn with this really extraordinary training that they've had through our interdisciplinary human rights program at the undergrad and grad level, who are then doing what I mentioned earlier, replicating that knowledge, either as a Liz Kletsky would as a professor, or as a public policy person in Catherine's case, or doing very grassroots local work, like any of the social work students who Kathy has worked with, because students in law, social work, and doctoral programs, for example, in political science, are all going out then armed with this knowledge to do their work differently. And I think that's, for me, one of the most exciting moments. We've now been around long enough that we can start to see the multiplier effect of this education and training, both in academic pursuits, but then in very practical ways, whether it's reforming public schools or public access to 
food and housing and shelter for people right here in Connecticut. Students who graduated from UConn and have come through our human rights program are unbelievably skilled interpreters of what it means to put human rights into practice and also producers of new knowledge as academics for continuing to improve the materials that we have available for teaching and scholarly work. And so that, to me, is probably, honestly, one of the most exciting things for me. I came here in 2004. Dr. Liebel and I came in the same year. The Human Rights Institute had just been in existence only a year. And now, looking out 12 years later at this amazing universe of people all around the world, literally, who are educated and or touched by the research and teaching that we've been doing, is really gratifying and exciting. In terms of thinking about what we are calling increasingly human rights practice, so training and educating and introducing students to ideas, both at the undergraduate and the graduate level, to think about the human rights implications of their work. So practice isn't just what a lawyer would do. It would mean that a social worker who is working in juvenile justice would be thinking with a human rights-based frame, both about their interpersonal interactions with those that they might be working on behalf of, but also in terms of being empowered to raise questions about maybe policy approaches that seem to violate or that violate the youth's rights. And so I have seen so many concrete examples of students who've come through the elective on human rights and social work thinking about their own work through a rights-based lens, whether it be what does it mean to try to implement a human right to adequate housing in our context where housing stock might be degraded in certain areas or blighted, there is a large percentage of absentee landlordism, not access to uh, resources to be able to raise an expensive security deposit, and so on, how might a human rights-based framework around housing help us to think about the kinds of resources that are needed to assure that an individual or a family has access to decent, affordable housing? So we have, for example, Nate Fox, who now works very centrally in Center Church in, in Hartford, helping to really launch a Homeless Bill of Rights through the state to see that Homeless Bill of Rights be passed, and then now to be working on the other end to be assured that it's actually implemented as fully as possible. Explicitly talking about the human right to have adequate housing and engaging with high-level human rights practitioners to try to bring home or to localize those norms within Hartford and within the state of Connecticut. To me, seeing that translation from the classroom and the engaged dialogues that students have often amongst themselves to the practice world is what is sustaining and inspiring, makes us want to do more. (laughs) Can you tell me a a bit where I can find more on the Homeless Bill of Rights? Is there a petition or anything online? Certainly, I can both send you links, but um, and and you could certainly share them. But you could also uh, Google uh, the Homeless Bill of Rights, Connecticut. It's one one of the states that's a leader in this in this regard. There are other states that have passed similar bills, but Nate and his colleagues, when they worked with Eric Tars out of the National Law Center on on homelessness and poverty, actually really did think very seriously about human rights implications of 
criminalizing people who might be on the streets at a particular time of the day or who couldn't access sanitation, couldn't access restrooms or places to take a shower. So I would encourage you to to look into that. Well, thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Just thank you for giving us this opportunity. I think one of the biggest challenges for people who do human rights work is making it intelligible or legible to an American audience. 96% of the American population has no clue that there's a universal declaration of human rights, for example. And so part of the excitement that Kathy and I had in writing our book was that this was an invitation to a conversation, an opening of what we hope will be much more broad-based appreciation for human rights challenges domestically and internationally on the part of American readers and listeners. So thanks a lot for giving us the chance to talk about our work, and hopefully we'll inspire some of your readers and listeners to to come and meet us at UConn and take our classes and do more in the community. Well, thank you very much both for being here. I hope to definitely work further with you in the future. Candlelight is a production of WHUS Radio at the University of Connecticut. It is produced by me, Carissa Bernard, with help from Charlie Smart. Special thanks goes to Professors Kathy Liebel and Shireen Hertel. Music for this episode is produced by Nylor. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at candlelightpodcast at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Candlelight. Candlelight.